And you're very welcome along to Wildcard Weekend. It's the uh, NFL show here on OTB. And I'm delighted to say that uh, straight off the bat, we've got Sam Monson with us. Sam, Happy New Year to you, sir. How are you doing? Yeah, you too, Jerry. I'm doing good. How about you? Yeah, pretty good. So I'm looking forward to this weekend. But um, this is one of those weird parts of the season where all the teams who are left literally think that they're going to be the team that catches fire. Certainly their um, fans do. But for the rest of the NFL, it's like, oh, I can't wait to see what next year brings for us and the uh, new coach that I'm going to get or that shiny new toy that I'm going to get very early in the draft because the team that I follow happens to be pretty crappy. Yeah, I think a lot of teams have been looking to that part of the offseason for a while now. Like the biggest things that we've been doing for the past month or so have all been free agent look-aheads or even you know, very, very, very early draft thing. So I think a lot of fan bases have been checked out for some considerable time already. Yeah, and the other thing that's happening is that um, teams are, are trying to work out who the good coaches are and who actually might be a good coach but who's just been in a bad situation who therefore might have benefited from it. Um, I was interested in uh, one of your tweets during the week. Somebody was asking, why is it that... Um, uh, Josh McDaniel keeps getting uh, job interviews, and you made the point, Tom Brady. Is, is he, you know, people got Tom Brady's assistant quarterback. Is, is Josh McDaniels utterly reliant on the fact that he works for Bill Belichick and also has Tom Brady in his team? I don't think he's utterly reliant on it. He, he schemes up um, some impressive stuff. That's a good offense that they run there, and it's, it's changed as well during his tenure. So I think he's a good coach. But you're talking about a guy now that has had one of the worst head coaching stints of any person ever. I mean, he took a pretty good Denver Broncos franchise and drove it into a cliff in record time. I, it, if you were looking at the Denver Broncos when Josh McDaniels took over and asking the question of how would I dismantle this as quickly as humanly possible, I don't know that you would deviate from the Josh McDaniels game plan very much. Um, so you've got that plus this kind of uh, bait and switch deal that he did on the Indianapolis Colts last year where he kind of took the job and then went actually you know what I'm going to say um, those are two pretty significant things counting against a guy as a head coaching prospect going forward but he keeps getting these interviews because you know he leads Tom Brady and this offense to success every single year and he comes from the Bill Belichick coaching tree which it seems that Every single year, people just keep keep going back to that well on the basis that sooner or later the Belichick magic has to rub off on somebody, even though it, you know, repeatedly seems not to. Yeah, it's, is Bill O'Brien the most successful? Is he? I mean, is it? Yeah. Does that count as success just yet? Getting this team to the playoffs. He is the most successful, and he's also one that kind of went away and did his own thing in college for a while first before he came back to the NFL level. Really, we haven't seen anybody have success going straight from Belichick to something else, to somewhere else, and, and standing on their own two feet. And I think, logically, that makes a lot of sense. You know, a lot of these coaching trees have come because the coach has a system, and that system gets learned by all their disciples, and it gets disseminated throughout the NFL, and the system is what's successful. But Belichick has never had a system. Like what makes Belichick a great coach is that he does game plans. You know, individually, week to week, he's pretty much unmatched at being able to come up with a game plan to defeat a specific opposition. And if you do that every single week, it's very difficult to teach that to somebody else because it's not a simply easily defined system. It's actually crafting, um, you know, specific instances of how to beat people. And I think that it turns out is, is none of the people that have left Belichick have been able to take that with them. Yeah, because it, it requires an incredible depth of knowledge about 
football where you can see anything, diagnose what it is, diagnose a counterpoint that will be successful against it, and then communicate that to 53 people running around randomly who are smacking their heads off each other quite a lot. Right, and you know, everybody wants, actually adjusting uh, for NFL coaches appears to be one of the last things they want to do. You know, everybody works on the basis of this is what we do, and what we do will work if we execute it to the best of our ability. So when things don't work, it's job one is what we need to execute better. We're not executing well enough. That's what our problem is. There is, it's very, very rare that NFL coaches actually take a look at what's happening and say, you know what? The thing that we do will not work against this opposition. We need to do something different. Or the thing that we're doing against this opposition is not working. We need to do something different. The idea that teams change what got them to a, a position of success, they just hate doing it. And really, Belichick is the outlier of a coach that's actually willing to say, you know what, we don't, we're not doing any one specific thing. We're going to do whatever it takes to beat the opposition. If that's running the ball 75% of the time, that's what we'll do. And if it's running the ball four times in the game, that's what we're going to do. We're not wedded to any system. It does seem like... Um with the exception of what's going on in, in New England where the success and the level of sustained success has been so long um, that, you know, it's, it's a bit of an outlier, that everything else seems a bit fluky. If you, if you look at the situation at the Eagles, for example, where um, the architect of their current success was sidelined by Chip Kelly and was basically out of the building for a long time, and then he comes back and gets control of the roster again and finds a coach who works with him, and here they are again in the playoffs having won the Super Bowl last year. It's hard to say that like, that was an overarching definitive structure that the ownership decided we need to have. You can't copy that, I guess is the point that I'm making. That, you know, um, like in Kansas City, they have uh, a really old coach who kind of has that level of football knowledge that Bill Belichick has. But again, you can't just go and find another Andy Reid. Like there doesn't seem to be a, if I get a, a head coach and, um, a general manager who are aligned properly and we approach the draft with a unified sense of um, what we want our team to do, then we're guaranteed success in this league. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is I think talent acquisition is still such a crapshoot in the NFL that it's very hard to just be sustainably good at something. So you can gain an edge by having a coach that's consistently better than everybody else. I think there's a few teams in the league that have that edge every single year but it's not a big enough edge that it will overcome um, you know, missing a few times in the draft. And if you just screw that up a few times, which everybody does, you know, Belichick's draft record is pretty terrible at times. Um, so if you mess that up for a couple of years in a row, you're in trouble because that edge of coaching or that edge anywhere else is not going to be big enough to overcome the fact that you didn't draft well for a couple of seasons. And we saw that really with Seattle. I mean, that, that team was built off really one draft where they hit on Russell Wilson, they hit on Richard Sherman later in the draft. They knocked that draft out of the park and that set them up so well for a period of sustained success. Then they didn't draft well for a few years after that. And once they reached the point where all those guys had to get paid on their second contracts, they had to start making some decisions and there weren't ready-made replacements in the draft over the past couple of seasons to take over the mantle and, and keep going. So. You know, other sports, it's possible to assemble this core of really good talent to keep them in place and just ride them for a huge window of championship success. I, I don't think that's possible in the NFL. You, you need to be able to replenish 
the talent because those guys you can't keep that uh, amount of talent in the building at once because the salary cap is still too tight. You know, it expands every year, yeah. but the expansion goes up to, you know, proportionally. The quarterback is going to eat up the bulk of that um, expansion every single year. And in order to have that sustained, sustained period of success, you either need to be really good at drafting and, and replenish your talent pool, or you need to have the kind of inbuilt replacements in the, um, or you need to have the, the kind of system that the Patriots have in terms of you're not that reliant on the talent because everything is about the game plan. You can swap in and out the talent depending on what game plan you're playing. Yeah. I, I, just briefly before we get on to the games this weekend, um, which job in, in your view at the moment is the most enticing? Is it the last few years of Aaron Rodgers, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time? Is it the franchise transforming presence of the number one overall pick, Baker Mayfield, living up to all of the hype and expectation of the entire city? Or is it actually um, the job in New York where the Jets have been a joke for a decade or nearly a decade at this point and you do have in Sam Darnold somebody you can really build around where the expectations are even lower than they are everywhere else? I would find it hard to look beyond the Browns job as a, a really good job to be in. I think the Packers one is probably the next best one because you do have Aaron Rodgers there you have, I think, a more stable structure in terms of ownership and the system. The ownership being a, a kind of unique case in the NFL of being almost crowdsource owned, you know, with the, the Packers being a kind of community owned team as opposed to a one lone billionaire owned gig. Like the only thing that would scare me off about the Browns job is the owner, Jimmy Haslam, potentially being a little bit trigger happy if things don't go right right away. But at the same time, there's no reason they shouldn't go right right away now. You do have the one thing that's been missing for the past 20 years of, of Cleveland futility, which is the quarterback. You know, they haven't had a Baker Mayfield. Everybody's seen that picture of, you know, the Cleveland Browns jersey that starts with Tim Couch at the beginning and there's like 25 names on there or whatever. Just every single guy craps out one after the other. None of those people have been Baker Mayfield. You know, the, the closest guy to that has been Tim Couch, who was kind of ridden out of the league with injuries and was never quite as successful. But you do finally have this franchise quarterback to build around. The rest of that roster is not in bad shape. They've actually been moving in the right direction for a couple of seasons now. And it took the quarterback. It takes the quarterback to catapult that a couple of years further down the line than they would have been otherwise. I think this is the, the great kind of job to get. And the other thing is, you get the credit now if you take that job of turning around the Browns. You know, you get to be the guy that turned this team from 20 years of hopelessness, the factory of sadness, into a contender again, into a playoff team, into a team that can win the division and, and actually contend for some silverware. Yeah, the factory of sadness. I'd forgotten about that. Um, before we get on to the teams who survived, I wanted to ask you about the Vikings. I know you've done a bit of work on this um, and, been, and been broadcasting about it, just how they managed to crap out this season so spectacularly. In a game where the Bears didn't need to win and actually might have benefited them not to win uh, and didn't play their full team, they still managed to completely smack down the Vikings when the Vikings had to absolutely put it all out there and win. It's a ridiculous situation they found themselves in. Yeah, I mean, that game was a pretty strong indictment for the for the idea that this team belonged in the playoffs anyway. If you can't win that game to get yourself in when your season is on the line, you've got no business being there. Um, so from that perspective, I think at least the right thing happened. 
because if the Vikings had made the playoffs off the back of that game, I think there's a pretty good chance they would have got their ass kicked by any team in the, the wild card round um, as soon as they face a you know legitimate team again. But everybody wants to put the blame at the door of Kirk Cousins. You know, the Vikings paid him $84 million. It's $28 million a year guaranteed. It's a huge amount of money. Um, and Kirk Cousins wasn't great. He, he wasn't able to, um, you know, raise his game and, and the game of everybody else around him and lead this team <clears throat> to the promised land. But I think that's just, it's a lazy kind of analysis. You know, Kirk Cousins was what Kirk Cousins has always been, which is an average to above average quarterback. He showed in some games that he's capable of executing that comeback. Um, but, you know, his PFF grade was the same as it's been for the past couple of years. And um, it's always been in the same kind of range. And it was pretty much exactly what I think the Vikings expected to get the only difference being that there's now a huge dollar figure attached to it. And honestly, I don't think that's, you know, people want to say he's getting paid that kind of money, so he should be a top five quarterback in the league. I, I think he's getting paid that kind of money because he was the last quarterback to sign on the open market where money gets inflated. Um, so I, I don't think you can blame him for getting that kind of money. Their biggest problem is the biggest problem for the last number of years, which is their offensive line is terrible. Um, they've got maybe one out of five viable starters, and that's a rookie right tackle who was supposed to be a two-year project player. Um, I'm still not even 100% convinced that Brian O'Neill is a quality starter going forward, but at least we haven't written him off yet. You know, the other four guys we've written off. The other four guys is definitely time to upgrade upon because they can't start in the NFL and be part of a quality offensive line. So that's a problem. The other issue this year is that their defense fell away. You know, it's still a good unit, but last year it was the number one unit in the NFL. It was historically good on third downs. Those things inevitably regress to the mean. And when they do, everything else looks worse because of it. Yeah, it's funny how the NFL, because of parity and because of the wage, um, the salary cap, regression to the mean happens in this sport way more and way faster than it does in other sports. I do want to talk about the, the Bears who actually beat them. There, there was... A moment, I'm sure, where they must have been thinking, if we throw the rest of this game, we'll play you next week more than likely, and we will kill you. So uh, <laughs> the fact that they didn't speaks very highly to the general integrity of the NFL, because I'm sure it, was, it must have been tempting at some point in that third quarter to go, if we just let them run in four touchdowns here, we're going to kill them next week. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that people uh, talk about all the time, is this idea of it is possible to rig the system a little bit and to play it to your advantage. You know, for example, just with the draft order, that the teams that have the worst records um, get the best draft spot. And ultimately, that's the single biggest way of improving your team in the offseason. And yet you don't see this systematic tanking that happens in some other sports to get the best record. You know, the, the Oakland Raiders, uh, the San Francisco 49ers, all these teams won games that did them no good whatsoever late in the season. In fact, if anything harmed their offseason uh, pursuit of the best draft, the best players in the draft, but they routinely do this every single year. So yeah, it's interesting that in a game, um, in a, a sport where there are so many opportunities where not necessarily playing your best actually is the best thing for you overall, it very rarely happens. You just don't see teams kind of game the system that way and try and play the easier way out. How good are the Bears? They're six-point favorites at home against um, the Eagles, and we can talk about the Eagles in a minute, but there's a, 
a strong argument that what the Bears have done over the course of the season so far in terms of consistency makes them the most consistent team across the uh, 17 weeks, 16 game season so far? Yeah, I think they're very good. I think the thing that stands in their favor the most is that their quarterback has not been the reason they've been succeeding. Um, and it sounds like the kind of it sounds like a silly thing to say because quarterback is the most important position and is the thing that drives all of these teams uh, to success. But Chicago have been able to get it done off the back of their defense, off the back of their running game, off the back of the scheme, giving Mitchell Trubisky a lot of easy throws and. You know, his pass rating is fantastic, but his PFF grade is not. And usually when that happens, it's because the guy is throwing to a bunch of wide open receivers that the, the scheme is getting open. It's not him necessarily making the plays. And, you know, we've been getting Bears fans all season long complaining about our analysis of Mitchell Trubisky. And we've been trying to make the point that this is actually a good thing because he's not playing that well. And if he starts to play better... That's only a good thing for your offense. You're able to be this successful despite the quarterback not playing particularly well. And if you hit the important games late in the season or in January where he starts to play better, that means you're immeasurably better off going forward. And I think we started to see signs of that from Trubisky. He's been playing a little bit better as the season has worn on. And Chicago have this defense that is potentially um, an edge over any other team, uh, certainly in the NFC. And they have a scheme that's as good as any team out there, period. And now they've got a quarterback that started to play a little bit better. I think this team is a legitimate contender. The only thing kind of going against them when you look at playoff odds and, you know, PFF has been running um, Super Bowl probability all the way through the season. And they're not actually that high on that. And it's only because they're going to be on the road. You know, they're going to have to travel um, to these tougher venues, and it's just it's hard to do that. The, the home field advantage is significant in the NFL, and Chicago has kind of left themselves in a hole because of that. They've obviously got home field advantage this week against the Eagles, and it is the yeah. Super Eagles who are supercharged because Nick Foles has um, suddenly somehow managed to reawaken the offense, which appeared to be dead five, six weeks ago. How the hell has this happened? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, the Nick Foles thing was absolutely... It's one of the most ridiculous things that's happened in NFL history, what happened last year. The idea that Nick Foles became Joe Montana for two games and they were the most important games of the season and they resulted in um, you know, a Super Bowl for the Eagles. I, I, I was talking about this earlier and I'm, I'm wondering if, the, if we've reached an age of you know, media saturation and just constant coverage and uh, the, the media cycle lasting just so short. We just don't appreciate things like that happening. You know, if that had happened in the 1970s, that would go down in NFL history and would be talked about forever as this completely ridiculous thing, improbable off the scale that happened. And now it's just, well, we're on to the next thing. Um, but he hasn't been as good as he was last year yet. But things have fallen in such a way that the Eagles have got back at least to the postseason. And again, with Nick Foles, you're in this situation where there's so much more to come. You know, we've seen he's capable of these absurdly good games. He might have the, the broadest spectrum of any quarterback in the league in terms of what you could get from Nick Foles on a given day. You could get this Joe Montana, Tom Brady kind of guy, or you could get a complete disaster. And there's almost no way of knowing where in this spectrum he's going to fall. Um, so far this season, he's been somewhere in the middle, a little bit closer to the good end. But again, the Eagles, when you look at them, there's a lot to like about this roster. They are the defending champions for a reason. They still have the best defensive front in the NFL. They're, they have the highest 
level of total pressure of anybody. They have the highest win percentage of anybody in terms of pass rush. Their secondary was getting gashed earlier in the year, but it started to get a bit healthier. And the guys that got pressed into service because of injuries have started to play a little bit better. Um, and, you know, Foles, if nothing else, is the guy that is prepared to heave the ball deep and kind of give guys like Alshon Jeffrey a chance to make a play. And he's the kind of receiver that can um, benefit because of that. They can actually make some of these big plays, those jump ball contested catches, and make plays that wouldn't have been there if Foles wasn't doing that. What do you do if you're the Eagles and you have Wentz injured and you have Foles on your roster at the moment? Obviously, I think the contract next year is something ridiculous, like 20 million quid to keep Foles if they want to. That's part of the deal. But do you sign Foles and trade him? Like, I know that everybody knows that high-stakes poker game, you're going to have to trade him, and so that diminishes his value somewhat. But at least you'll get something for him. Or do you just cut him free and go, thanks very much for winning us, ah, slash, maybe two Super Bowls? Yeah, I think it kind of depends what happens in the next few weeks. Um, right now, I think you can cut him and you're okay. Somebody will sign him. He'll probably get a healthy deal. And because, again, of the NFL, kind of the intricacies of how the system works, you probably end up getting a draft pick because of that with the, the, the compensation picks uh, for free agents. Depends, obviously, how it shakes out with how aggressive you are in free agency. And it's all about net spend, essentially. So if you lose Nick Foles, that's, in theory, worth a, a compensation pick. But you could get rid of it again by if you sign three other guys in free agency. So there's value to just letting him walk, even if you don't get the draft pick directly from it in a trade. Um, but the next couple of weeks could make that pretty interesting. You know, if Foles repeats what he did a year ago and shows up with his two biggest games, gets you to the Super Bowl or, you know, beyond whatever. At that point, this is so the, the, the people have been writing these think pieces about, well, did the Eagles go with Nick Foles going forward? Is he now the guy over Carson Wentz? And it's been ridiculous, right? There's, there's no way that makes any sense other than the fact that if he repeats what he did last year, like if he's able to do that again, yeah. I think that at that point becomes a very real conversation. Yeah, and I, mean, I have no idea what the answer is because, again, he would probably remain a quarterback with a massive spectrum of play and you could get this Super Bowl guy or you could get terrible on any given week in the regular season, but you would now have seen two back-to-back -back seasons where he's managed to turn it on in the biggest games that matter and ultimately won two championships and that would be pretty difficult to turn your back on. Except that surely if he's won it twice, that's the only amount of times he's going to win it. He's not, he's not a three-time winning QB. Surely it's like you've managed to, you've got the miracle. Thanks very much. Carson, come on down. You can be our guy for the next five or seven years. Yeah, but he shouldn't have been a one championship winning quarterback. So uh, if he's done it twice, I think it's pretty hard to, it's hard to, you know, hard to kill the golden goose, right? The Golden Goose keeps laying eggs. Let's keep it in business. Yeah, fair enough. Um, do, do, how do these teams actually match up? Like, um, he likes to heave the ball and give Jeffrey a chance. I mean, the revenge game for Alshon Jeffrey angle to this hasn't really been talked up enough for my liking this week. But uh, what what is the potential range of outcomes here? Because you can see why Chicago are heavy favourites. They've got the the game and the pressure and the ability to um, to scheme open their receivers and to score against Philadelphia in a way that maybe some of the teams I've played against recently have been able to do, but their defense is also much better than the teams that the, the Eagles have been ripping apart the last couple of weeks. Yeah, particularly in coverage. So obviously they've got Khalil Mack, and Khalil Mack can wreck any game on his own pretty much. He's that good. Um, also, Akeem Hicks in the middle of that defense probably doesn't get enough credit because of Khalil Mack, 
Um, and because, you know, until Khalil Mack arrived, he wasn't single-handedly destroying games. But Akeem Hicks is a top-level player. I mean, he was as big a, a, a factor in destroying the Vikings offensive line as Khalil Mack was. But it, crucially, on the back end, they're just so much better. They've got, you know, a bunch of top guys in, in, uh, in the back-end coverage that the Eagles are going to have to beat. It's not just going to be Alshon Jeffrey running deep pretty much unopposed and the way they've been in the past. They're actually going to have to um, get something done against some top-flight coverage guys. Eddie Jackson at safety has been our top-graded safety all the way through the league. He's made a lot of big plays as well. So I think that's the kind of defining difference between these two teams is that the Eagles are getting more healthy on the back end, but they're still patching up that secondary, and it's still a weakness where Chicago's secondary has been every bit as good as their defensive front. And that just it just gives them a massive advantage over these teams. And again, ultimately, as much as we're talking about this idea that Nick Foles could go on another Super Bowl run, he's also well capable of like throwing three interceptions and being the reason they lose the game. Yeah, yeah, totally. Anything else that uh, you're looking forward to, especially this weekend, Sam? I'm looking forward. I, I think the wildcard games are pretty much all going to be really good. I think that the, the way things are shaping themselves out, it looked that most of the games are going to be pretty interesting for a while, but I think we've actually ended up with a really good slate of wildcard games. I'm, I'm pretty excited to see all of them. Generally, on wildcard weekend, there's a couple of blowouts. There's, like, it happens for numerous reasons. A team gets, up, uh, gets a lead and the other side realizes that the game is up and then the score gets run up in the last quarter and it looks like uh, it was never close even though it might have been close for two and a half or three quarters but at the same time it's hard to pick one of these games actually being a blowout this week yeah and there's a lot of teams this weekend that don't have a dominant offense and you know the Chargers are probably the best example one that does but they're going up against the Ravens who have as good a defense as anybody and we've seen already that the Ravens defense was able to shut down that Chargers offense so, like, I mean, in order for a blowout to happen, you basically need an offense to put up a lot of points. And I don't know that anybody's capable of that really this weekend. Um, if there's one I think that's capable of that, it's probably this Chicago game just because of that, the, their defense and the Nick Foles factor, the turnovers could create that kind of um, blowout. But I don't really see one offense just dominating and, and racking up a huge amount of points. Sam, great stuff. Happy New Year to you. Thanks a million for joining us. You too. Take it easy. Sam Monson there from PFF. You can get him uh, at PFF underscore Sam is the uh, Twitter handle for that. Ooh, a bit of feedback there on my microphone. Sorry about that. I've no idea what's causing that. We might um, try and sub out the mic, actually. Uh, in the meantime, I'll tell you a little bit about um, last week's results, if we've got them. We do indeed, yeah. Uh, so, finished with the best and most important game on the slate. It was the Colts beating the Titans 33-17. That victory was uh, winning you're in. Um, and obviously the Colts are in this weekend. They're playing against Houston on the early kickoff on Saturday. Uh, the Cardinals play the Seahawks as hard as they possibly could. The Seahawks win it with a last-second field goal, so 27-24. Um, if the Cardinals had won that, they would have lost the first pick in the draft, which is obviously idiotic. Uh, so it is mad that they would uh, bother their holes to do that. The Steelers beat the Bengals 16-13. Damp squib uh, finale to the uh, to the the end of an era, obviously for the Bengals. From the Steelers' perspective, was it the end of an era? Was it the end of uh, Antonio Brown at Heinz Field? We'll see. We'll talk about that with Kian Fahey in just a minute. Uh, the Rams blew the 49ers out. The Ravens beat the Browns 26-24 in a very important game, and that it also got them through. And maybe the Browns could have done the Steelers a favour. So I suspect that the Browns are actually delighted 
that it was, uh, well, I don't know, I mean, obviously they hate the Ravens equally. That Vikings game we've spoken about, the Chiefs blew the Raiders out 35-3. The Broncos, um, again, another uh, limp end to a Broncos season. Uh, the Redskins failing to score. What a dumpster fire they are. The Packers also failing to score after Aaron Rodgers went off. Uh, 31-0 is the score there. Jim Bob Cooter's last game as the offensive coordinator for the Lions. Uh, it was at Leonard Fournette's last game for the Jags. It wasn't even on the uh, field of play. It was um, huffing on the sidelines as the Texans beat them 20 points to three. The Patriots, 38-3. I mean, what, what can you say about the Patriots at this point against the Jets? Um, the Saints beaten with uh, Teddy Bridgewater playing uh, also against the backup quarter, quarterback for the Panthers who um, just skinned the, paints, uh, the Saints, 33-14 in that one. The Giants-Cowboys is an amazing finish to that game. Completely needless from um, the Cowboys uh, to win it, but they did, and um, maybe maybe it wasn't needless. We'll see this weekend. Um, 34-32 was the score for the Falcons against the Bucks. Again, uh, an epic um, in-division game that was actually really exciting, and needlessly so. But then the Bills obviously beating the Dolphins 42-17, and that did for Adam Gase as well. So, um, Kian Fahey is with us. Kian, how are you? I'm doing all right, how are you? Yeah, has your, uh, have your Twitter mentions... Um, Calm down from the, from the fire um, that you lit. I'm, I'm very thankful for the filters that Twitter has. So I haven't seen many of those tweets that have come my way. So um, last we checked, and this was like still literally going up, ticking up in front of our eyes. Uh, 3,875 retweets, 11,940 likes. Roethlisberger ran Todd Haley out of town, criticised Martavis Bryant constantly, was all too pleased to call out Bell, called out Washington publicly, and now he's fighting with Antonio Brown. I wonder what the problem could be. Yeah, I actually think that's one of my more bland tweets. So I'm wondering why it goes that way. It got so popular. But even like I talked to you a couple of hours ago before we did the show as I normally do. And even since then, he's come out with something else where he's now blaming Le'Veon Bell's distraction factor as a reason for this team doing poorly. So my line of thinking here is, is Rattlesberger throwing 16 interceptions in a season because he's thinking about Le'Veon Bell? No, he's throwing 16 interceptions in a season because he comes to significant points in the game, throws them all into triple coverage, and then blames Antonio Brown like he did earlier this year. He's done that a couple of times. This is who Roethlisberger is, and it's who he's always been. He calls everyone out around him publicly. He blames everyone else for everything. And obviously, Antonio Brown is just sick of it. And Antonio Brown, being the wide receiver and not being the quarterback, being a guy who, ever since he came into the league, has had this freakish work ethic, who's had this complete competitive spirit. If you go back to his early years, Antonio Brown didn't come in like Odell Beckham and start straight away. He had to earn his starting spot and earn his place on the roster even. And there were stories all the time of him just fighting Ike Taylor, literally fighting Ike Taylor, where Dick LeBeau would have to throw him out of practice, threw both of them out of practice. And that's how Antonio Brown has become this great player. So obviously you take someone like Antonio Brown, who's got that attitude, that mindset, that fight, and you put him with Ben Roethlisberger, after a while of getting blamed for everything that you're not doing wrong, you're going to snap a little bit, and that's just what happened. Antonio Brown strikes me as a Larry Fitzgerald-type player who might be able to continue playing at a very high level for another four or five seasons. He's 30 at the moment, and so you kind of feel like wide receivers tend to 28, 29, 30, 31. It's like, okay, thanks, lads, you've, you've all been great, and you're loaded at this point, so there's no need for you to risk running those crossing routes where uh, the safeties can come and decapitate you. There is a chance that Antonio Brown could actually outlast Ben Roethlisberger in the league. Oh, he, he should do. He definitely should do. The, like, I think all the talk at the moment is, could he be traded or could he be released or could they move on from him somehow? Uh, I think it's going to cost the Steelers $21 million in dead money. 
So unless they can work something around that or figure a way to make that work for them, I don't think that's going to happen. I think he will be on the Steelers next year. How that relationship will be, how fractious the locker room will be is one thing. But the if, you're, if you are talking about longevity, yeah, Brown is still probably got three years of being an all-pro level and then probably two or three after that where he's still a quality player. Yeah, I did see Mike Garofalo try and make the case that there's actually only a million in dead money when you offset the... Uh, money that you would actually be saving by not having to pay him anymore. So the guarantees would accelerate and actually you take a, anyway, whatever, whatever it was that he, he was saying that there was some way that it could be traded. If, if, if he was to be on the trade block and everybody knows you want rid of him, what value is there on somebody like Antonio Brown? To me, he's a, like, you, you take Khalil Mack early this year. Khalil Mack is part of that group of transcendent talents, part of that group of guys at the very top level of their position who have massive impacts on your whole team, surpass just what you would normally expect from that position on its own. He's part of that group. Like He's not Odell Beckham because Odell Beckham is five or six or seven years younger, but he's a two first-round pick type of player. You're not getting Antonio Brown cheap, and the, the reality is you can do that if you are a team who... like Actually, I know, I know you would enjoy this because it's the 49ers, but if you look at a team like the 49ers, they've already got their quarterback, even though he's coming off an ACL tear. But they're locked into their quarterback. They've already got a lot of pieces on defense. They've already got a foundation for their offense. So if they have the two first-round picks added to that team, probably doesn't have that much of an impact on, uh, compared to other teams. If they have Antonio Brown added to that team, it helps them take that step forward the same way with the Bears. You're kind of set up to not be rebuilding your team. You're set up to take that next step into being a competitive team. Whereas if you look at someone like... Maybe the Cleveland Browns aren't the best example. Let, let's let's skip the, the Browns because the Browns are different. The Jets is where I was going to go, yeah. If you're the Jets, you still have a lot more work to do before you can be taking that step into the competitive level. So giving up two first-round picks for him wouldn't make sense. It all depends on where your team is. But Antonio Brown in a vacuum has that kind of value, is that kind of star quality, and is that kind of player who is worth investing in. Yeah. I wonder, is there a weird scenario, potentially, where we end up seeing... Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown at the New York Jets next year? Well, I think that'll be a possibility, but I, I, I find Le'Veon Bell's situation going to be fascinating. I know he's going to hit the open market, but do we? It, it's very hard to tell from team to team who values running backs and who doesn't, who is going to pay a running back and who isn't. And Bell, how, and the other part of this is how teams are going to look at him taking a year off. Me, personally, I think it's a great thing for him to take a year off. He didn't get hit this year. He, he didn't waste his body playing off for a franchise tag. He didn't get any the, the 300, 400 hits he was going to take. So he's fully healthy next year. I don't have a problem with him taking a year off because I don't think he's going to show rust. Once he goes through a full training camp, he'll be fine again. If you put him on the Jets with Antonio Brown, I guess we're getting into a little bit of fantasy land here. Yeah, if you can add the two of them together, that's a big thing. If you only add one of them, it's probably a little bit of a waste. Yeah, yeah I mean, that would be interesting to see. I'm sure Sam Darnold... Uh He's waking up at night with a fever dream going, yeah, get me, get me these, please. Let's move on and talk about some of the, um, the actual teams and the games that uh, are left. Before we do, sorry, you did want to talk about Vance Joseph and Josh McDaniels. You're interested in these two um, as potential coaches, as uh, the most interesting coaches who got fired. Is that because we haven't yet seen either of them with the proper QB to see what they're capable of? I know the, the two, I was kind of interested in who got fired were Vance Joseph of an Adam Gase and I was Sorry, kind of interested Gase. in yeah, yeah, Gase. but I'm, I'm actually interested in McDaniels as well I, I actually very quickly I mentioned McDaniels as well because McDaniels as a coach 
as a, someone who can build an offense, looks very, very good. But we all know what happened last year with the Colts, and we all kind of know his reputation of being someone who's very difficult to work with. That's kind of a fascinating thing, but it's kind of hard to talk about further than that level because we don't know the very specifics since he's in, he's in New England. We don't get anything about those guys. Like Matt Patricia this year in Detroit is coming out and just making, and making an awful look for himself. He's apparently late to meetings all the time. He's giving out to reporters. He's just being a bit of a disaster, and none of us knew anything about his character when he was in New England. But if you look at Gase and Joseph, Joseph... I don't think should have been hired as a head coach in the first place. He had been a defensive coordinator in Miami for one season. So he, he was taken in as this leadership guy, this guy who wasn't really going to change our defense that much, wasn't really going to change our offense that much. He was going to be like John Harbaugh in Baltimore, where he was just balanced like a CEO or whatever you want, way you want to put it. And John Elway didn't give him anything to work with. He gave him Case Keenum. He said, hey, he gave him Trevor Simeon. So he never had a chance from the start. So I kind of feel... He didn't deserve to be heard, also didn't deserve to be fired. And what the Broncos are doing now is just sticking with John Elway, who's a little bit of a plague on the organization. It's interesting to me that Joseph is getting opportunities, but I think it's with the Bengals. So that's kind of a Mike Brown thing, hiring someone he already employed before because he was defensive backs coach before he went to Miami. Adam Gase is fascinating to me because Adam Gase, the only thing I'm very certain that Adam Gase does very well is design shot plays, hard play action, beautiful design, knows how to get guys open, knows how to get the quarterback clean. Outside of that, his play calling is extremely conservative, relies on a lot of screens. But like McDaniels, there's a lot of people in Miami who dislike Adam Gase. There are a lot of people in the media who dislike Adam Gase. There are a lot of people who are players that are like dislike Adam Gase. Uh, Kenyon Drake said he wanted to be traded if Adam Gase was coming back. And Damakun Su had already been gotten rid of. Jarvis Landry had already been gotten rid of. Jordan Phillips fought with him during the season and was released and went to Buffalo. All of those players are now celebrating that Gase has been fired. Normally, even if you dislike a coach, you don't come out and celebrate the fact and laugh at it because it's a bad look for you. But that's how much these guys disliked him. So my question there is, Maybe he's a really smart coach. Maybe he's someone who can build this great team. But can he manage it? I'm not 100% sure at this point. Yeah, does he go back and be a coordinator somewhere? Is that the best thing for somebody like that? That's what, That was my initial reaction. I was like, he, he could be a great coordinator for someone. But apparently he's the number one candidate. Apparently he's the guy everyone wants, except for Denver, who's said they don't want him. Him, Mike McCarthy, uh, Bruce Arians is, is kind of talking about he might come back. Bruce Arians would obviously be the best of them all, but we, we don't know for sure if he's coming back yet. But it seems to be Adam Gase at the top and then Mike McCarthy afterwards, which I mean, maybe that speaks to how little proven options there are available now. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that Mike McCarthy's reputation after the last couple of years of really just not getting any proper value out of having Aaron Rodgers. I don't know how much that's his fault and how much it's the fault of the organization. Not, not signing players, not renewing the offense around him. No, I think a lot of it's McCarthy's fault. I think he's a bad coach. I think the fact that he won a Super Bowl is the reason he's this highly thought of. I think the fact that he's he has connections with a lot of people, like the, the GM in Cleveland is friends with him, I believe. So that's a big reason that the Browns are selling on him. A lot of these hires get done through nepotism. A lot of these hires get done through who you know rather than if you deserve the spot or not. The, the big challenge really for me will be you're taking Baker Mayfield who struggled a lot with Hugh Jackson at the start of the year, was really good with Freddie Kitchens who did a lot of work to dress up their offense to create easy throws for Baker Mayfield. If you give him to Mike McCarthy, you're doing the exact opposite of what Freddie Kitchens does. So you, you're not really paying attention to what's happened with your quarterback if you think Mike McCarthy is a good fit for him. Um, that is interesting. We'll, we'll get plenty of time to analyse how well or otherwise those um, signings work. But I do want to start previewing the weekend's games. The um, Colts at the Texans, traditionally this is the uh, part of the season where if the Texans have made it this far, they bow out um, by getting their asses handed to them. Um, but th- this is different. They've got Deshaun Watson and they've got um, Nook Hopkins who didn't drop a single pass all year, which is a phenomenal statistic. 
And he caught a lot of passes he shouldn't have caught because that guy is has a gravity to him. The ball just has to be anywhere near him and he's giving you a shot to catch it. Uh, I, I think the focus, rightfully, for most people is going to be on the quarterbacks. And it's a, it's a fair thing to say. Andrew Luck and Deshaun Watson, like, I, I may be more critical of Watson than most, but he's taken a step forward this year as far as I can tell. And no matter what you say about him, he's an exciting, exciting quarterback. The, his sacks are a big thing. He has 62 sacks, I think, this year it is. But a lot of that gets blamed on the offensive line. A lot of that is Watson, too. He moves around. He moves himself into pressure a lot. And that's going to be a big tell in this game, I think, because the Colts have a good defense this year compared to what we expected it to be. But it's still not a defense that's going to overwhelm anyone. So if he gives them a couple of free sacks, that could be a big difference in what I imagine is going to be a high-scoring game. The key for the Colts, to me, outside of Luck playing well, like Luck has to play well regardless. They don't have a team where their quarterback can't play well and they can rely on everything else to carry him. If, if Luck doesn't, As long as Luck plays well, the most important thing after that is going to be if Ryan Kelly and that offensive line holds up. Ryan Kelly didn't play last week. He has a neck injury. The interesting thing here is Ryan Kelly is an integral for... An integral for uh, setting their protection, calling their plays before the before the ball is snapped, saying who's going to block who, who's going to do what. And he's also a great center on the interior. But Ryan Kelly did not play in the game that the Colts lost to the Texans. Or, sorry, he did play in the game the Colts lost to the Texans, and he didn't play in the game they beat the Texans in, which was a more recent one. So maybe they can do it without him. But for me, the big matchup here is that offensive line with Ryan Kelly, with Quinton Nelson, with Braden Smith at right tackle, who's going to be vital against J.J. Watt trying to contain J.J. Watt, Clowney, D.J. Reed, or Christian Covington. That's a four-man rush that can get to the quarterback on its own. If they can hold that up, Luck will pick them apart, even with T.Y. Hilton limping a bit. So, Keen, a lot of people are going to be tuning into Wildcard Weekend, particularly that early game on Saturday, kind of the first time this season looking at um, some NFL matches. So, basically, what you're saying is um, the offensive line for Andrew Luck, the QB for the Indianapolis Colts, they're the ones who will be protecting him and giving him the space to throw, and they're up against actually the most fearsome opposition that any team could face in Houston this weekend. Yeah, well, it's, it's J.J. Watt. Man. Like, I, I kind of recoil at this a lot because we tend to overstate J.J. Watt a lot. But even when you consider that, he's still a phenomenal football player. He's, he's, one of, he's going to be a Hall of Fame player, which is a huge thing, obviously. And he's come back from these injuries that no one kind of expects him to come back from. Him and Clowney, like... Clowney's not a great pass rusher, but he's got nine sacks this year. He's not someone who's going to come off the edge and, and make you look like a fool the way Watt will. But when you put the two of them next to each other, it's impossible because you've got a choice between am I going to let Clowney bull rush the whole pocket and collapse everything on the interior or am I going to get let Watt go one-on-one -on -one and get to my quarterback before he can even throw the ball? These are these massive guys up front. They're 6'5", six 6'6", foot 6'7". Six foot six, six they all have to be able to move really well. You probably won't even notice them, but you'll notice them when the quarterback's getting hit. You'll notice them when they blow up a running back in the backfield and they eventually do find the ball. But it sets the tone a lot of the time for these games because how much a quarterback works under pressure determines how effective their offense can be. On the opposite side of the ball, it's a lot different because the Texans want to do a lot of heavy, hard play fakes where they're going to throw the ball down the field and you're going to see DeAndre Hopkins catch a lot of passes unless the Colts actually go and double-team him, which they really should do because the Texans don't have anyone else to beat them. Yeah, Demarius Thomas out, obviously, yeah, with an ACL or an Achilles. Um, the Colts are a point-and-a-half underdogs in this game. The Texans are a point-and-a-half favourites, which suggests that um, the oddsmakers can't make their mind up here because um, the Texans are at home. So who's going to win? 
Yeah, well, that's a little bit favouring the Colts because normally it's a three-point uh, difference when, when one team's at home and one team's on the road. I, I'll take the Colts. I, I think Andrew Luck is very clearly the superior quarterback and that matters more at this time of the year than it does during the regular season. Uh, I think the health of these teams is, is a big deal too. The, tech, the, the Texans just... Like, Lamar Miller's phenomenal. The tight ends there are pretty good. DeAndre Hopkins is phenomenal. But they've lost Kiki Cudi. They've lost Marius Thomas. It just doesn't feel like they've obviously lost Will Fuller a long time ago. It doesn't feel like they have enough around the quarterback on that side of the ball at this point of the season. The uh, Seahawks and the Cowboys promises to be a really great game as well because, um, again, the Cowboys decided to try and go for the win last week and they made it. They didn't play Ezekiel Elliott, so he's fresh and rested. But the rest of the team does have uh, pull it out of nowhere momentum shifting victory last week to celebrate and kind of keep the adrenaline pumping this week. And Seattle have kind of squeaked into these playoffs, not playing particularly well the last three or four weeks. I I was I was infuriated watching that Cowboys game. Uh, look, they had nothing to play for at all last week. They were locked into that seed, and you can say, hey, they wanted to get momentum or whatever, but they didn't play. The, like it wasn't just Elliot who was that. Tyron Smith wasn't playing. Zach Martin wasn't playing. Uh, Amari Cooper played. I don't think Amari Cooper played a whole lot. He did play a little bit, as far as I know, he didn't play the whole game. And Dak was out there for four quarters. I don't understand. They were going for the win at the end of the game. But look, um, I don't. I, I think the Seahawks have one major advantage, and that's coaching. Outside of that, I think the Cowboys are just a better team across the board. But if you go back to earlier this season, Seahawks beat the Cowboys. Uh, that was at home, I believe. The Seahawks beat the Cowboys, and they beat the Cowboys largely because of uh, Ezekiel Elliott's two mistakes, where one, he had a fumble going into the red zone, going basically to set up a, tr- uh, a touchdown. And then he also had a play where he stepped a toe out of bounds just before he catches the ball. The NFL has this ridiculous rule that if you step out of bounds at all before you catch the ball, you're illegal, you're ineligible, you're not allowed to catch the ball. And that took a touchdown off the board. I think the Cowboys are going to run the ball really well against this Yacht team. I think they're going to exploit them on offense a little bit because the defense for the Cowboys can swarm you. It's fast enough to keep up with Russell Wilson. It's fast enough to play with, to match these bootlegs. You've got these defensive ends. The defensive tackles and linebackers are going to be able to slow down Chris Carson. I actually really like the Cowboys in this game. And look, this sport, picking games in this sport is a fool's errand. And it's, even at this time of the year, it's still extremely difficult. But I think I'm most confident this weekend in the Cowboys winning outside yeah. of all teams. There's been a lot of money for um, the Seahawks because the line has moved from 3-1. to one. But anyway, uh, just to move on to the, the Ravens game, um, I don't really know what to make of the Ravens because early, early in the season, Harbaugh was getting sacked and they were moving on and they were blowing yeah. things up. And um, the uh, Aussie Newsom era was over and it was a new sheriff in town. And now it's like Harbaugh's getting a new contract on the basis of being able to sub Joe Flacco out and um, put in a running quarterback, which completely changes the style of play and has obviously energized everybody with Lamar Jackson. So... Um, Surely this is the point of the season, though, where that's all well and good, but this is now the playoffs and come back to us when you're fully grown? I so wish these two teams weren't playing each other. I love both these teams. Like Ideally, we would have the Chargers and the Ravens next week because obviously the Chargers have Philip Rivers. Obviously, that makes them a fascinating team, but they've also got Joey Bosa and they've got Derwin James on defense. For the Ravens, like... I love this team. This team's identity is we're going to win defense, we're going to win low scoring games, our offense is going to control the game, and we're going to have long drives. And it has, like, for as much as we talk about how time of possession doesn't really matter, and it doesn't really matter, but when you do have these long drives, it can be frustrating and it shortens the game and it takes possessions away from the other offense. It doesn't matter how long the offense is sitting, but it does matter how many opportunities you give them. And with Lamar, like, 
Lamar in the with Gus Edwards as well has been very important to who's a very it's very similar to Robert Griffin and Alfred Morris a few years back where Alfred Morris would just run right up the middle and RG3, but this time Griffin or this time Jackson was very different to Griffin, would work off of him running outside, running option plays, running whatever you want to do off that. But I love this offense because they have all this running. Like the the Browns last week set up sold out completely. All they wanted to do was stop the run. They couldn't do it. That's how good their running game is. But when you force them to throw, Lamar can sit there. He will sit in the pocket. He will sit there and go through his reads. He will throw the ball short, throw the ball intermediate. His deep ball hasn't been there yet, but they barely throw deep anyway. He will sit in the pocket and he will manage the pocket and move against pressure and find open receivers. So this isn't like they don't throw a lot and we shouldn't confuse a team not throwing a lot with them not being able to throw. I used to always have to say this with the Seahawks back in the uh, Russell Wilson early days. They used to run the ball an awful lot and Russell Wilson had very few attempts. But when he did throw the ball, he was very, very good at throwing the ball. Same situation with this Ravens team. The fact the Ravens are at home is probably the reason why I would lean their way. But man, I wish the Chargers were getting to play the Texans or the Colts. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that actually, it sounds like, is the game you're looking forward to most this weekend. Yeah, I think I'm looking forward to the the Cowboys game as well, though, because I find that fascinating in the sense that it's the the matchups of it. But I think if you kind of took the all all matchups, if you took the two teams from each games and you said who are the best teams, these would be the two best teams out of any of the matchups. One last question then for you about the Eagles and the Bears. Um, are you buying Nick Foles at this point? <laughs> Man, I can't buy Nick Foles. What are we doing? I know I did. We did this last year and it worked. And Nick Foles. And the Eagles' offense was phenomenal. Yeah, like the Eagles' offense is still really, really good, but now they've got to play that, play that Bears' defense. And you've seen what that Bears' defense has done to pretty much everyone. Like, has anyone come up against that Bears' defense and looked okay? Maybe some teams have exploited them a little bit and had a little bit of success, but no one has gone in and kind of manhandled that defense or dominated on the, on the line or, dominated, or, or exploited the secondary. And if you've got Nick Foles as your quarterback, that's what you've got to be able to do. When they won the Super Bowl last year, they won it because the offensive line dominated and they mauled teams up front and the receivers could then pick apart the secondary. This year, I don't think the, offense, the supporting cast is as good, and I also think they were very lucky last year. So getting that luck two years in a row is a big challenge. The Bears, I think the only way the Bears lose this game is if Mitch Trubisky throws it away from them and that's honestly very possible based on how he's played this year. Yeah, I, I do think though that from the Eagles' perspective getting this far and surviving into the offseason that's oh, yeah. a massive victory for them. So there's a sense that like they can relax now and I don't think that relax means oh we're going to relax and play better football. It's like we're going to relax and we did justice to being Super Bowl champions nobody can say we didn't make the playoffs the next year we did that, thanks very much, let's go and have like the crack because you know we won the Super Bowl last year lads. Absolutely. And the other thing about that is they are the ones like they said we're sitting Carson Wentz down. They knew the position they were in. They were not confident they were going to be here. So once they won those last three games and got the other results that they needed from Kirk Cousins imploding and, and everything else they needed to happen, because it wasn't just the Vikings they needed to beat. That's a huge win for them. And they'll take that. And Doug Peterson, like Doug Peterson's a great coach and that offense and that team as a whole and that culture as a whole is a really good team. They just haven't had a great year. Having said that, Nick Foles missed out on a million bucks last week. But if he wins a game in the playoffs, he gets a million quid. So, you know, he's got, he's, he's got a nice enough motivation not to throw three interceptions. Nick, Nick Foles' contract voids after this year. and He's going to get paid 20 or $30 million a year from some stupid free agency team. So let's not worry about Nick Foles' wallet. Keen, great stuff. Enjoy the weekend. Thanks a million. Thanks, man. See you later. You can get uh, Keen Fahey on uh, Twitter. Uh, uh, I'm going to run you through the fixtures here very quickly um, this weekend, just a reminder. So these kickoffs are American times. Uh, 4.35 will be 9.35 and then uh, middle of the night for the Seahawks and Cowboys. So 9.35, Colts and Texans on Saturday night, the late games, the Seahawks at the Cowboys. And then it is 5 past 6 
on Sunday evening, the Chargers at the Ravens, which will be a brilliant game, uh, followed by the Eagles at the Bears, which is a 20-10 kickoff for that one. Sue is here with her picks. How did you get on? In that week, two out of three, and the Eagles only lost by two points for me, which was really annoying. Anyway, their spread was three and a half, and they won by two. So it wasn't too bad. Over in the year, it's like 17 out of 28. That's not bad. That's, uh, that would be you up. Well, not brilliant, but... I haven't really done like an accumulator across these games. I've kind of picked one from everyone. And then I'm probably going to give you the one that I feel the strongest about. So just to, re- to reiterate there, Keen said, and he was the first, that's the first time I've heard him kind of strongly, the Cowboys mm-hmm. minus one. Yeah, I took the Seahawks. Right, so you're taking the Seahawks plus one. Yeah, I think, now Keen's a, more of an expert than I am, but I think the quarterback makes a huge difference here. I think Russell Wilson's going to make a massive difference in that game. But I think they've both got very similar games as well. They've a bit of a run game. And I don't know, the defense has been good for both of them. I don't know. I like I just I wouldn't trust the Cowboys because of the start of the year. And I feel like the Seahawks can be a bit all over the place. Yeah, I don't know. But I just a bit more I'm a bit more comfortable betting on Russell Wilson than I am on Dak Prescott. The 49ers beat the Seahawks two weeks ago. I know, but the 49ers have been this weird freak team that keep backing up my bets every week. Yeah. We've talked about that. And then the Cardinals, <laughs> who are the worst team in football. Yeah, uh, but they have Larry Fitzgerald, so they're okay. And that was that was in, that was in Seattle. Yeah, they only lose by a field goal at the end to yeah. the Seahawks. So I, I don't know. I, like, but you could see the Seahawks just playing the exact same game. I like you could see the Seahawks. Russell Wilson is one of those people that can score something in the last twenty seconds of a game and change everything. And I would have the most confidence in him doing that as opposed to Prescott, even though he was unreal last week. Yeah. The but um, I think Ezekiel Elliott's going to have a massive game and actually I can see the Cowboys doing that one. So yeah. the early kick off, the Colts. Um, Colts at the Texans. I would take the Colts there. I think the spread isn't too big because it's the Colts. I think, like we've been talking about the Texans all year and saying, are they really all of that? And are they that brilliant? I think their defense is good. I'm really excited about their quarterback. But I think, I think Luck is just the better quarterback and I just think the Colts are going to edge that very, very slightly. We've got the Ravens. Mm. Minus two and a half at home. Yeah. Against the Chargers, plus two and a half. Yeah. I, I've been over and back about this one because the Chargers are weird. They do really well on the road. I think they're seven to one on the road or something insane. So, I, like, I've picked the Ravens, but again, uh, like, I just, I'm so confused about the Chargers. But I like Jackson. I think there's a bit of excitement around him. I like that team. And, you know, against the Browns at the weekend, I thought they were quite good to hold on. Yeah, okay. I mean, you can make a case for either. Like that's, yeah, these, I decide. These spreads are all pretty good. <laughs> uh, so the Eagles have... Um, yeah, you're not going to like this You're one. taking six points. The Eagles plus six against yeah. the Bears. I'm scared of the Bears' defence, though. I think they're, they're going to they're gonna make uh, Nick Foles' life hell. And Foles is slightly injured. He has bruised ribs, I think. Yeah, yeah. So he's going to be back in this weekend. But I I kind of... I don't know what it is about the Eagles. He's I had a feeling... not broken. This is yeah. the type of game they get blown out afterwards and it reve- they reveal, oh, he actually broke his ribs three weeks ago. Like, why didn't you tell us that? Either that or it's going to be, a, yeah, the Eagles aren't actually up to that much and Foles isn't that brilliant after all. It was just an absolute fluke. And I kind of hope it's not that. There's a good chance of that. Because like, they, yeah. they they just haven't been that, I don't know, they were, they were awful all year and then they squeak in. They're in the awful division so they get like a bunch of Yeah, and I just looked at games. Wentz's stats before I came in here. St- Wentz's stats are much better than, than Foles in terms of like passing oh, and yeah. the only thing he's higher on is sacks, which is not good. But I think they've actually sorted out that line and they've sorted out their defence. They might be having a good shot. I just hope it's the Eagles. I mean, I love the Bears. I love the Bears' defence. They're a really exciting team. But I hope it's 
Bob Siegel's. Yeah, that game could be like a 15, 14. Yeah, I like. I don't know. Like by the time I leave the studio again, it's going to be. You're taking the points, so the Eagles plus six from Sue this week. So yeah. the Colts uh, plus one and a half. Yeah. The Seahawks plus one. The Ravens minus two and a half, and the Eagles plus six. So yes. taking most of the points. And uh, all road teams. All road teams. No, no, the Ravens are home. Sorry. Oh, sorry, the Ravens are home. Yeah. Well, I had the Chargers on my first pick, and Don got rid of them again. All right, folks, thanks very much for being with us for a Wildcard Weekend. We'll see you for uh, the divisional round next week. And uh, until then, good luck.